The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Well, it's a great uh, privilege to be with you and to come together as our Lord commanded. It's called Monday Thursday, as Bruce indicated, when he was walking us through the steps of Jesus, where we have arrived on Monday Thursday. That's a download from the Latin. You get another word, mandate, from it. And that there is a command. In fact, it's a twofold command that we are to celebrate this meal in the in the new covenant. And we are to and the other commandment he gave to them, uh, give you a new commandment that you love one another. And here's the newness of it. As I have loved you. The command to love one another, of course, throughout the scripture. But now we have before us. With Christ's 33 years of life and ministry and his three years of public ministry, how we ought to love him and how we ought to love one another because of the love of Christ, which sets us free from our sin. And he's given us a meal. Now, this isn't new. Uh, our Lord, actually, when we come to this meal, what we like to do this Lord's Supper that we celebrate throughout the year, we celebrate it ten times uh, at Briarwood with a season um, our focus is to create a season of communion, coming to the Lord's Supper, whether it's Lord's Day morning or Lord's Day night. But we do this one, and what we'd like to do is to see the stream of all of the Scripture as it focuses upon Christ and brings our focus to Christ, which is what the table does. It brings us back to where our foundation is for salvation. And that foundation is in Christ and Christ alone. But this supper that he instituted is not the first one. In fact, if you've got your copies of God's Word, I'd ask you to follow along with me. It's in Luke chapter 22. If you'll go there with me in Luke chapter 22. And um, I want to read for you what the, the writer of the Gospel, Luke, what he records for us about this evening. He says in Luke 22, verse 1, Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's the Passover. Uh, it's described, it is defined, and it is outlined as to how it is to be done in the Pentateuch for us, specifically in the book of Exodus. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. We took note this last week. Their previous plan was to kill Lazarus and stop Jesus. But after Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, they go to plan B, which is to kill Jesus. But what they think, their plan B actually is God's plan A, that Jesus is going to go to the cross to save us from our sins. And they are a part of God's plan, even in their rebellion and in their hatred against the Messiah and in their rejection of him. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him. 
to, uh, to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, in other words, he's got a plan. I'm going to betray him. But where am I going to betray him? I'm going to betray him somehow where the crowd is not around. And that's what he is planning to do. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. You know, this is really interesting, isn't it? Peter and John. Now, of course, they're part of this triumphant uh, that becomes the leadership of the disciples, Peter, James and John. But Peter and John, interestingly, are those who will bring forth the preparations for the last Passover and the initiation of the Lord's Supper. And as they do it, this which points to the death, the atoning death of Christ, the supper, the body and blood of the Lord. It is Peter and John who will come to the resurrection uh, and see them at and see the empty tomb. So Peter and John go and prepare the, the Passover us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us to prepare to prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room or the upper room or the uh, inn? It's the word katalama. It's the same word. This supper is going to be established. I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. They go to this katalama, this upper room, this guest room. In other words, if you had had a house, you'd had a second floor, and that would have been the guest room. It was open-aired, and that would have been the guest room. This place, boy, I wish I had about 12 hours with you. I don't. But this place, of course, will become the epicenter of Christianity, this upper room. Of course, he was born. In an upper room, a katalama, in Bethlehem, well, in the stable. And then they moved into, that's what they came looking for, a katalama, an inn, an upper room. They were all filled, so Jesus is born in the stable. And then, in the process, they move into the house. And now he gets to the end of his life, and we're at another katalama. This isn't just anyone. It is here that Jesus will celebrate the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper. It is here that Jesus will come for the first gathered worship service on the first Lord's Day. It is here that these many of these disciples, when they run in fear, as Jesus goes to the cross, they'll take refuge here. It is here on the resurrection that Jesus will come and be in their midst. And, of course, one guy won't be there named Thomas, right? And what will happen then? Well, Jesus will come back one week later, the second Lord's Day worship service. And then Thomas will be there. And so this upper room, but the upper room's not through yet because 40 days later when Jesus ascends into heaven, he'll send them back and they'll come to this upper room. It's big enough to handle 120 people. And they'll be there in prayer. And that's where Pentecost occurs, same room. And it is there that they will continue to be found. In fact, when Peter is arrested, it's in that same room that they will be praying when he is set free. And they, the word will come to them there. What a very special place. And it is a place that it becomes very precious in the lives of the people of God. But here we're introduced to it. The master is likely, and I think I can prove this from the scripture pretty clearly, is likely the brother of a man named Barnabas. And he has a son named John Mark who will be part of the first missionary team. 
who will also be used, who will be in the garden after this. He'll follow to the garden and will escape by running out of his robe there. It's really interesting all the dynamics that are happening in these eight days of grace to glory, the week that changes everything. Well, he goes to the room. He says, where's the guest room? And I'll eat the Passover with my disciples and he'll show you a large upper room furnished. Now, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Looking at the cross where he will bear the wrath of God. To save sinners by the grace of God, because of the love of God, and to redeem us. But before he goes there, he says, this is what I want to tell you. For I tell you, I will not eat it, this supper that he establishes. I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Pack that away in your mind just for a moment. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you, from now on, I will not not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. As obviously, uh, we're seeing Judas. Judas will depart. They'll have the conversation. Jesus will say, someone's going to betray me. John gives us a better, ins- a, a larger insight into this. I've often wondered um, why he picked Peter and J- John to go and prepare this. It wasn't Judas the treasurer. Wasn't he, shouldn't he pick up the check? Shouldn't he make the preparation? But what was Judas thinking about? How to betray him. Privately. Boy, this would have been a good opportunity if Judas had known where they were going. But Judas doesn't know. Peter and John know, but not Judas. And Judas will leave here and go out where he to those with whom he had made the agreement for 30 pieces of silver. And after the supper is over and Jesus preaches his sermon, the Olivet Disc- uh, the Upper Room Discourse, they'll go back over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus will hold a prayer meeting there. With Peter, James, and John. And then Judas will come there. That's the time. And that's the time that he'll be betrayed. So here is, Ju- here is Jesus sending Judas on his way. And they begin to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Notice who are they questioning? When Jesus says someone's going to betray me, who are they qu- They're questioning each other. There's only one of the disciples that are sitting there that asked Jesus who it is, and that's Judas. Judas asked Jesus directly, and Jesus, of course, says, what you do, do quickly. Now's the time. Now is the time. See the sovereign hand of Christ establishing the meal whereby we can focus upon him, and every time we do it, recalibrate.
Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in what Christ did on the cross, where the love of God met the holiness of God to save sinners by the grace of God to the glory of God. But when, he, when Jesus does this, there's a real conversion, a convergence that is taking place. This is called the Last Supper by many, and it is, in the sense, it's the last time Jesus will physically sit with them at this supper. Now, they're going to celebrate this supper regularly, but it's the last time he will, in his incarnate existence, be with them at this supper. But it's another Last Supper. It's the last Passover supper. And it's not only the last Passover supper, it's the first New Covenant Lord's Supper. So you've got the Passover supper that is anticipating Christ, the lamb that's slain, who cleans out the leaven that takes away our sin. It is that supper that's pointing to Christ. Now, because of what Christ does and what Christ accomplishes, what is it that we now have? We have the fulfillment. And this bloody Old Covenant Supper is fulfilled in Christ, now a bloodless, a supper that pointed to him, sacrificing. Now, when he gives the sacrifice that takes away all of the sins of all of his people for all of eternity, he now gives us a new supper that points back to what he's going to do as he bears our sins in his body and sheds his blood, declaring our forgiveness of sins and clothes us with his righteousness so that we have everlasting life in him. And then he tells us, not only will he not eat it with them until he says this, But I will one day when I eat it anew. And there he's looking to the consummation supper, the marriage supper, when all of his people will be together with him in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that's come down. But they knew about the Passover. Jesus knew about the Passover. John himself And the Gospel of John takes great pains to point out, Luke takes pains to point out that Jesus' family observed the suppers and the feast regularly as he was growing up till he began his public ministry at age 30. And then John tells us in his three years of public ministry, he intentionally celebrates the Lord's Supper every single time, every single year. John 2 is his first Lord's Supper in his public ministry. John 6 is the second Lord's Supper in his public ministry. And then John 12, where we are today, is the last time that he will do it before he goes to the cross. Bruce walked us through the eight days that we've asked you. We've sent the devotional. By the way, if you're visiting with us, and just go to the website. You can get the devotional and follow us the rest of the week until we uh, work our way through this. Next uh, Good Friday, when we go through the words that Christ utters from the cross, the seven words, the seven sayings that he makes. And we'll have that from 12 to 1 tomorrow. And then, of course, Resurrection Lord's Day. And you can follow the texts that are there for you that we've made available devotionally for everyone. But as you followed it, probably you noticed triumphal entry. Remember our study of that on the Lord's Day? And then he comes back on Monday 
And he cleanses the temple. That's the second time he cleanses the temple. He did it the first year of his ministry. And now he does it again at the last year of his ministry. And then he not only cleanses the temple, the next day he is teaching in the temple. And all of these parables and all of these lessons that he gives are extraordinary. And then he gets to the end of the day on Tuesday. You'll find it in Matthew 26. I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time. But you'll find it in Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2. And here's what he says to them as he finishes that day of teaching. In two days, we will celebrate the feast. And then I will be put to death and crucified. And then the next verse says, and the Pharisees were seeking how to kill him. Well, then Wednesday comes in which there is reflection and we work through what takes place on Wednesday. And then comes this day, the day, that second day from what he had stated in Matthew 26, the day of the Passover, the day of the preparations for the Passover. Peter and John are sent and they find the place just as he has said. And so they prepare the supper. Now, what would they have done? Well, they would have properly prepared it. Now, folks, the Passover... Let me just say, we've tried to, if you'd like to come up later and take a look at this, one of our pastors has put this together. And let me tell you what he didn't do. He didn't do what perhaps many of you experience when you go to uh, quote unquote satyrs that are given today. Almost all of the satyrs that I have seen that have done, they're done from, uh, they're done from downloading what, uh, Jews who have been dispersed into Europe uh, in their communities, what they would do in the 19th and 18th and 17th century. What we've done is we've gone back with as much research as we can. And you, what you'll see is this is not a complicated banquet. But remember the very first Passover. Can I use our language? It was a meal to go. It was very simple. It was very intentional. And you were to eat it clothed with your staff. And you are to do exactly what all of your mothers told you to do. Eat it all. And then take your staff and follow me. Be ready to go for me. So what would have happened is whether it's a family or a synagogue or the gathering of those who would come together to celebrate the Passover... The first thing, there would be ten steps that they would take. I'm not going through all of them, but I'll, I'll just mention a couple. There would have been ten steps that they would have taken. Step number one would have been to prepare it. You need herbs. Let me tell you what you don't have is leaven. You make sure there's no leaven. You've got bread, and you make sure there's no leaven in that bread. You've got bread, you've got herbs, and you would have taken a lamb to be slain. Jesus, in the fulfillment of the slain of the Passover lamb, will do away not only with the slain of the Passover lamb at this, uh, by what he does on the cross, but he'll do away with another day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He'll do away with both of those because of what he does on the cross for us. But you would have, in that day, you would have slain the, you know, the lamb, and then you would have brought it, or you might have divided it among others, and you would have brought it to eat, and whatever you brought had to be completely eaten. 
And so the table would have been set up very simply like this. The only ones allowed at the table were God's covenant people. Those who bore the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and their families. And as they were gathered around there, the next thing would happen is the two baptisms that were prescribed in Exodus 30. And in fact, if you didn't do them, you could be put to death, according to Exodus 30. One baptism was a baptism of your hands. Now, they would have had two cloths. I've got one here. They would have had two cloths, and one cloth would have been used to wrap around the one who is going to baptize their feet. The other one would be used to dry. The first thing they would baptize is their hands. And the way that they would do that is they would arrive, and here would be the basin. You would hold out your hands, and then they would pour, and then cleanse the hands. You would simply just hold your hands over it, and then you would, um, and as the hands were cleansed, you remember the disciples actually would continually come under criticism because your disciples don't baptize their hands like we do, the Pharisees said. But they would have done it in this meal. They would have had, uh, they would have been, they would have done that with their hands, and then they would have sat down and And then their feet would have been baptized as another basin would be brought out. It would be put under the feet and the one would come and they would pick they would pick the foot up and put it on the towel that wraps them. And then they would pour the water on and wash it and then set it back down in the basin. You can't imagine what your feet look like walking through a first century town, village, city. So they usually found a way to get a slave to do that. Now, it doesn't tell us, but I have no doubt they got the hand baptism done. But we do know they didn't do the foot. But Jesus is going to make sure that Exodus 30 is followed. So he goes and he washes their feet. You remember Peter, don't you? (laughs) Peter realizes what's going on and Peter says, oh, no, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, then you're not clean. To be right with God, I have to wash you, ultimately pointing to being cleansed by his blood. Then, of course, Peter, you always know what Peter's thinking. He didn't have a big filter. Peter then says, Lord, not my hands or my feet, but all of me. And so he declares. But what did they do at the meal? Well, after the baptism had taken place, there would be a prayer and they would sing the Hallel. They would sing the psalm and then they would sit down. And the appointed one, or if it's a family, the eldest son would say, Father, what means this Passover? Now, remember, everything's been prepared. The lamb's been slain. The blood has been brought. And it's been put over the lintel and over both doorposts. Three strokes. That the Lord would pass over the homes and those that are in it that were under the blood. Three strokes. Because our Saving work is by God. Trinitarian gospel. Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. And after they had sung and the statement was made, what means this Passover? Then what would be stated is simply this. The entire family or group would be instructed from the book of Exodus that God graciously delivered us from the bondage that we were in and brought us out through a wilderness and to the promised land. And so they would be instructed. Now you're ready to eat. Now you are ready to participate. Well, what they would have done, they'd have taken bread, very much like this. The bread back then served as bread, uh, served as nourishment, and it also served as a fork, a spoon. And so they would dip it. When they would dip it, they might take some herbs, and they would place upon it. They might even take some of the lamb and place upon it, and then they would partake. And they would then go through the meal. The meal would begin with the first cup of wine. The wine would be the fruit of the vine. And as was their practice, it likely would have been new wine. That means very little, uh, very little alcoholic fermentation time had taken place. And furthermore, it would have been, um, it would have been um, diluted by three cups of water for every one cup of wine. And then they would have partaken of it. They would have drank the cup. They would have eaten the meal and uh, having been instructed. And after the meal, they would then take a second cup and then they would sing a hymn to go out. But at this point, Jesus stops. And after the second cup has been taken, he takes the bread and he says, This is my body, which is given for you. And then he broke it, and he passed it to his disciples, and they would partake. Now, it's obvious that this isn't the physical body of Jesus, as some even today would say. Because what? (laughs) Where is Jesus' physical body? It's right there. This is anticipating the work of redemption, and we partake of the benefits of what he does with his body, and we spiritually feast upon him and all that he has done to take our sins away. And then he takes the third cup. And when he gets the third cup, it's also poured. And after pouring it, he then says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which has been shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. And then he says, this little bit of grammar work here. He doesn't say, drink it all, as some have said. He doesn't say, drink it. He said, drink it all, and you put it to the first guy. What happens? Nobody else is going to get anything. Actually, the proper translation is, all of you drink it. We all are saved by the work of Christ as his body bears our sins. And we partake, reminding us that by faith and repentance, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And it is his blood 
that wipes away all of our sins so that we are clothed with the righteousness of God. This meal looked to Christ, anticipated him. The meal he establishes for us is even more simple. The new covenant meal, the bloodless meal, is even more simple, but how gloriously profound. In fact, if you don't mind, I'm going to read one more passage, and then we will make our way to the meal appropriately. If you've got your copies of God's Word and you'd like to follow along with me, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And when you get there, I want to uh, read for you what is called the words of institution, as the Apostle Paul gives us the insight into this meal. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, and I'm just going to read at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. This meal pointed to Jesus. And that's where the new covenant meal is pointing you back to Jesus. And what he did on the cross to save you from your sins. He didn't just overcome a tyrannical ruler named Pharaoh. He defeated Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. He didn't just bring us out of the bondage of the slavery of men. He takes us and delivers us out of the bondage of our sin. You can be right with God and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You can be set free from the power of sin, not only declared innocent, justified, because he takes away your sin and gives you his righteousness. This table is also telling you he breaks the power of sin and regeneration. You can be born again, and you may still have sin living in you, and yes, you do, but you no longer live under the dominion of sin. And now you're set free to live for him. You see, it's so easy for us to think it's what we do that saves us or allows God to save us. This table keeps reminding you, you have been set free to do for Jesus, but you don't do for salvation. He's done it. This table keeps putting you back to your foundation. We have been delivered from sin's penalty, power. We have been delivered from, we are being delivered from its practice, and one day there's another supper coming in which we will be delivered from the presence of sin. And it's because of Christ. That's what is taking place on this glorious night. And that's where we're being pointed. So it is my great privilege as a minister of the gospel to invite you to the new covenant meal that has been mandated by our Savior so that we will know what it means to love one another as he has loved us. And so we know what it means to tell a lost world that's searching for any and every answer that are all empty and futile, that there is one 
who doesn't love sin, but he does love sinners. And there is one in his enmity against sin defeated it for you so that you as a sinner can come to him and be set right with God and God come right within you. That's the glory of what this supper recalibrates us. That old covenant meal, remember, he delivered you. Clean out the leaven, repent, and then take your staff and follow me. The new covenant meal, remember the body and blood of Jesus. Clean out the leaven. Examine yourself and repent. You're free to confess your sins. You can be honest about sin and confess it because you're not being saved by how well you do. You're being saved by what he did. And now you can preach the gospel and live the gospel until he comes again. That's where our meal is pointing us. So just as they would have invited Those who are in the covenant with the sign of the covenant circumcision, then all of you who are in Christ, I invite you to this meal today. Those who have been circumcised in Christ, he has cut out your old heart and given you a new heart. He has cut out your sin and nailed it to the cross. He is your circumcision. So all baptized Members of the body of Christ who are in Christ. You don't have to be a member of Briarwood. You're invited. You don't have to be a part of the Presbyterian Church in America, which we're a part of. You're invited. This is the Lord's table. Not just one one element of his church. This is the Lord's table. If you're in Christ, Christ is in you. You belong to him. And you reside in his people and with his people. Then this is the covenant meal. To refresh and renew you. Remember, repent, and be renewed in your foundation in Christ and your life now for Christ. I invite all of you. If you have children here who have not yet publicly professed Christ and been joined into the body of Christ, then you can do with this meal what God's covenant people did with the Passover meal as they used the meal to instruct their children of a God who delivers them, that they might come to Christ. This meal cannot convert anybody. This meal confirms and calls us first back to our foundation, Christ and him crucified. Then forward to live for him and then one day be with him. Because the Christ who was crucified for our sins and buried arose on the third day. And thus we shall be with him forever. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much that we can come to this table. The very simplicity of it. The body of our Savior. The blood of our Savior. And Father, we can rejoice in serving you. Would you come, Holy Spirit? And we have done as they did in the old covenant. We come to the meal with instruction. And then, because we want to partake of Jesus by faith, and faith comes by the hearing of your word. But now, Father, we want to, by faith, see what our Savior has done. Hear from him 
the assurance of salvation for all who are in Christ. And then see and hear what he calls us to do for him, because the love of Christ compels us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing the hymn of preparation, but I would first say this to you. Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then after breaking it and giving thanks as we have done, and to set these elements aside, he would instruct us to take it as we will tonight. He then took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. And we set this aside with prayer. Two distinct actions at the table. The bread and the cup. All of you in Christ come and partake. Let's prepare our hearts with a glorious hymn of praise to our God. The Hallel pointed to him. This hymn will, pre- will prepare us to exalt the one who has come for us. And is coming again. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205 776 5200.